Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 103. I'm Marie Billado. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come on to the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we dive into it, exploring what works and what doesn't, trying to transform the raw idea from coarse straw into literary gold. Literary gold. Horse straw to literary That makes us Rumpelstiltskin. It does, doesn't it? I like it. It's a fairy tale story from from homestrung spa to spa. What the <laughs> hell is spa? Straw to literary gold. <laughs> so so very true. So very true. And dear friends, that's just one aspect of the fairy tale event happening right now on the Skype line uh, with my co-host Marie Billado at my side. It has been a fairy tale event from the get go. I'm so enjoying having you in the in the wing man chair uh marie thank you so much i am loving every second of it so thank you so much for inviting me <laughs> we throw a good party here at the round table by golly and the chairs are pretty darn comfy there are so. and there is glitter and there are uniforms <laughs> of course if, if you're involved there must be glitter <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and speaking of glitter, let's 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 throw some more in the air and bring our guest host back, dear friends, uh, for a most intriguing and engaging twenty minutes with episode recording of just seven days ago. Uh, we are delighted to welcome back to the big comfy chair here at the round table, Clint Gage. Clint, dude, first of all, you have the coolest name. Ever, uh, I just want to get that on the yes. table right now. I'm in love with your name. Uh, I'm in love with the 20 minutes with discussion. And, dude, I am pumped to brainstorm a story with you, man. Thanks for making the time. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> is Clint Gage your I, real name? Yes, it is. Holy crap, That's dude. Cool. The, the, the gods my, just my pretty friend. much said, you're the man. We're going to give you a badass name. Go out and be badass. Yeah, I got to thank my dad. for. Well, I, actually, I got to thank my mom for that. Because my dad didn't like the name. Really? Oh. Well, because I, I'm the third, mm. and he didn't. He thought it was too egotistical to name a child after yourself, and wanted to go with something original. And my mom insisted, so well, I got I got Clint. Thank you, Mrs. Gage, for 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 making that happen. Because Clint Gage, every protein I, I can see, it's kind of like you know when those names pop up in in baby booming and everybody's named James or Matthew or whatever. I can see protagonists coming out in the next you know six eight months. All of them named Clint Gage. So I'm just saying. No, I, I, that's right. <laughs> and they got to be badasses. They got to be badasses. Totally. <laughs> Clint, I, I gotta ask, man. Uh, uh, you know, Shotgun Mythos is hot and smoking out there on on t- interwebs uh, uh, a clean exit is is being shopped around at the various festivals uh, and receiving I'm sure critical acclaim uh, but I, I you know having spoken with you at Balticon and uh, during the 20 minutes with I get the distinct impression there's more on your plate so regale our listeners if you would uh, uh, what's what's coming up in the world of Clint Gage? Well, I mean, we're working on uh, figuring out how to make Shotgun Mythos more of a uh, transmedia project. Interesting. Uh, looking at radio drama, role playing, and uh, and of course season two. We are well. I mean, we're kind of resting from a clean exit right now because uh, we just finished 
about two weeks ago, we just finished uh, production on that. Wow. Um, and then I've already started working on scripts that we're going to be filming next year. Uh, really? Because our plan is to go right back into production in March. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow. Holy crap. Can you can you give us some, so some I, I teasers? Try to keep, I try to always keep busy. No kidding. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not allowed to because I'm actually, it, it's not my original story. I'm actually uh, kind of a, a hired gun on this. Ah, um, okay. I'm going to, I'm basically the lead writer and the uh, the director and producer, but the original story is from someone else. We'll be, we'll be announcing teasers as we go along. Outstanding. Um, it, it, it's, it's a bit of a grindhouse noir. So, <laughs> and there's that word noir. We know that's going to be in there on a Clint Gage production. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, Shaka Mythos is, is, I guess, by definition, an urban fantasy, but it's, I, I always refer to it as a fantasy noir. Sweet. Um, right down to the point that we've got our detective and he's got his gal Friday. Um, <laughs> so, I kind of wrote that in. A classic trope. Uh, a classic trope. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I, yeah, I did that on purpose. So. <laughs> Well, what about fiction? I know you've 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 dabbled in fit dabbled. No, you've you've committed to fiction in your past. Uh, are there any you know just fiction projects, short stories, or or anything along those lines on the horizon for you? Well, I'm actually working on a Shaka Mythos novel. Actually, <laughs> what a shock! Cool. That's yeah. badass. Talk about transmedia. There you go, dude. Yeah, we're working on the part of the story that was way too expensive for me to even consider filming. <laughs> there you go. Resort to the theater of the mind, baby. <laughs> That's excellent. Exactly. So, uh, you obviously, you were at Balticon uh, just recently. That was fabulous. Are there other conventions on your schedule ahead? Actually, right now, uh, the, the, the one thing that nobody ever thinks about when you're a filmmaker is I've got to set aside probably... Probably five to six thousand dollars to prepare to go to film festivals. Mm. So I, you know, it's most of that has been right now. We're just kind of waiting to see which film festivals we get invited to. Okay. Um, in hopes that we get. I mean, assuming we're going to get invited to something. Oh yeah, but that, uh, that's going to happen. Yeah. You might as well tuck away the money now, dude. Well, that's what we've been. That's what we figured was the. We would rather we would rather have the money saved and then find out we're not going and put it towards another production than to find out at the last minute and have to save in a really quick fashion. Very prudent. So, Very prudent. Yeah, right Right now the film is out with uh, the Toronto Film Festival and um, Action On in L.A., so we'll see what happens. Dude, good luck with that. Good luck. Fingers crossed. Thanks. Everybody at the round table, uh, everybody cross your fingers for Clint. That'd be so fabulous. Clint, I will make sure that, that links to, to A Clean Exit and Shotgun Mythos and Growth Media Productions uh, are included in the liner notes so that our, our listeners can make with the clicky-click and get caught up and keep track and stay, keep their finger on the pulse of the awesomeness uh, that's coming out from, from Clint Gage. That's very cool. Marie, I'm going to turn the mic over to you, ma'am. What do you have coming up in the world? (laughs) (laughs) I have some fun stuff coming out right now, actually. Um, I have a serialized novel in in the old fashioned way of one bit at a time coming out on an app called Radish which is just recently available on Android and it's available on uh, Apple as well but uh, the story is called The Legend of Gluck. It's a sword and sorcery adventure in a post-war epic fantasy world where basically a barbarian and an elven sorceress are traveling and figuring out that maybe the bad guy they thought they'd killed didn't quite die as much as they thought it had. (laughs) (laughs) oh that's cool serialized fiction radish i i got it gluck 
Really? The legend, yes, the legend of Gluck. Yeah, it's based on the short story I'd sold to an Ed Greenwood and Garbo, uh, Gabriel Harboy anthology years ago. Um, and I, I got this chance to serialize this. And they're a serialized novel. It's like Conan Barbarian type of idea here. Short stories, adventures. <laughs> so it, it's all going up on Radish. And it's a lot of fun if I do say so myself. It sounds like awesome. it. it. That's very cool. But I know that's just the tip of the iceberg. What else you got going on? So I have a novel uh, with uh, Helma that's out already in their Helma setting called Eye of Glass. It's a lot of fun. It's perhaps the only Helma book in this dark fantasy setting of Ed Greenwood's that is actually being listened to by 11-year-olds. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> Because it's funny as opposed to cannibalistic. Um, not that they're all cannibalistic. And and you're up Canada way, so uh, what, what conventions are on the horizon for you? You know, I don't actually have a whole lot until uh, September. Beginning of September, CanCon in Ottawa. That's mm. a, a big one that right. I'm heavily involved in and absolutely adore. Uh, there is Fan Expo in Toronto coming up soon that sometimes I go to. I don't think this is one of those times, but sometimes I pop up there. <laughs> It's a crapshoot. Uh, <laughs> it happens. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, Game Hole Con. Game Hole Con in November. Yes, I will definitely be there. And so will you. Yes, I will. <laughs> We're going to be having some fun down Game Hole Con way. Uh, up there in Madison, Wisconsin. You betcha. Yeah, looking forward to that one. Very cool. Very cool. God, so much fabulosity in the world. The liner notes are going to go on for a mile, and that's fabulous. Uh, that's very cool. Excellent. I'll make sure that all gets out there so our listeners can make with the clicky-click. But right now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take a brief pause, give some podcast airtime to a to a fabulous Kickstarter, another podcast, a, a, an ebook. God, there's so much going on out there that just delights me to no end. Uh, but give them some podcast airtime. And then when we come back, Clint, Marie, I would love to brainstorm a story with you. What do you say? Just do it. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Shia LaBeouf would say. That's what we say. Dear friends, you say it too. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. (laughs) The time has come, the villain said, to plot of many things of heroes, traps, and raygun blasts, of minions and power rings, and why the sidekicks always die, and why the supervillains make the best kings. Supervillain Corner returns for its epic third season, premiering October 31st and dropping every following Saturday. Subscribe through iTunes or download the show directly from super-corner.com. That's super-corner.com. We always come back! (laughs) Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand. The brainstorming feast, the reason why you're here, the reason, of course, why we're here. And this awesomeness does not occur without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the slightly less comfortable writer's chair here in the round table to set the table for our brainstorming feast. Uh, uh, and dear friends, uh, growing up 
in Staten Island, New York. Our guest writer for this episode started writing when he was nine years old. He was inspired by comic book adaptations of classic stories, the works of Andre Norton, Asimov, Heinlein, and the horror movies that he was allowed to watch. And the ones he wasn't allowed to watch, but watched anyway, because that's how you do it with horror movies. When he saw Apocalypse Now in the theater, he knew he wanted to be a filmmaker. Since then, he's worked in the burgeoning independent film industry, self-financed a feature-length film, and wrote a lot of screenplays, including a supernatural horror script entitled Carmella, which was a finalist in the New York City Horror Film Festival screenplay competition. He now lives in Secaucus, New Jersey, raising two children with his wife, who is also a talented Broadway actress, and he's seizing the reins of his creative of destiny. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Matteo Massiello. Matteo, dude, massive props for the cojones it takes to step up to the writer's chair. I know it's never easy to put your baby up to scrutiny, especially public scrutiny like this. So, dude, much gratitude. Hats off to you, sir. Thank you. So thank you for giving me the opportunity ah, uh, creating that, this platform for all creatives. <laughs> it really is. It is. And, it, and it's, you know, it's certainly going to help you. It's going to help me and Marie. I'm sure Clint's going to get something out of it. And the listeners, this is a win-win-win yeah. all the way around. So I, I got to ask, before we get into this, Mateo, yeah. um, is having a Broadway actress as a wife an inspiration for you as a filmmaker, or is it a distraction? It, it's an inspiration because... She uh, is one of. She's in the minority of those who can make a living doing it, and got that right. You know, she's opened up musical theater to me, uh, which I feel like is the only hope for humanity. Wow. Okay. Um, let's see what else. And she's actually done some film work too. Sure. Um. So, you know, she's just a true inspiration. That's always, awesome. You know, there's nothing more that can be said except that. There you go. And and that's all we're looking for is some, is some inspiration. <laughs> that's very cool, man. Awesome. Well, let's get into this. I'm, I'm keen to see what uh, what the inspiration has wrought uh, in your storyteller's brain. You know how this works, Mateo. We give you five to eight minutes. Uh, uh, give us the title, the format, uh, uh, the length of the film in this case, because it's a film that you're producing, which is your pitching which is awesome give us the tagline and the themes introduces to the world and the characters give us the basic tent poles of the story and we will be off to the brainstorming races uh i'm, I'm gonna stop talking now mateo the mic is all yours man okay title and genre my feature length screenplay is a horror story with the working title the turning the hook line in a small town children start to murder the adults as a desperate parent searches for her children, she encounters a posse dealing with the children by corralling them. However, this becomes too difficult. The posse is forced to consider killing the children in self-defense. The theme of the story is the effect of violence on children and how a community deals with its fear of undesirable elements. The world, set in the present, takes place in a small town with about 200 children and a small police force. The characters, the main protagonist is Audrey Moore, late 30s, divorced, works as a kindergarten teacher and raises her four children. She's committed to the well-being of the children in her community. She is patient, nurturing, and empathetic. She's good at problem solving and keeping cool under pressure. Audrey's weakness is her growing despondency at the emotional and financial strain the divorce has caused. She finds herself more impatient and intolerant towards her own children and adults. 
Audrey is supported by Maggie Turner, late 20s, with two children and pregnant with a third. She loves her children, who are the center of her life. Her weakness is her strong emotions due to her pregnancy. The antagonists of the story are the children who kill the adults. Spoiler, there is no reason why they act in the way they do. Uh, they act strangely only when they are made they have contact with someone else who another child who apparently is acting the way they are. Um, they're usually just grim faced and silent, very passive. But when they, an adult comes within arm's length of them, they become aggressive and assault the adults. And then there's Troy Wakefield, early thirties, an unemployed troubled town resident. He considers his actions as mercy killing and doesn't think the children can be saved. The story, a typical morning as townspeople leave for work and children get ready for school. Audrey and Maggie care for their children. Maggie transports Audrey's children to daycare while Audrey transports Maggie's children to school. Meanwhile, a child, Bishop, reminds his parents, Troy and Katie, that he is late to school as they argue about financial problems. The argument between the parents escalates when he accuses her of cheating. Bishop tries to intercede, at what point Troy, his father, starts physically abusing him. Katie stops him and takes Bishop away into school. At the school, Audrey uh, notices that many students have called out this particular day. And she does notice bruises on Bishop's back, which causes her to call the principal. The principal calls the police, who start making courtesy checks around the town to see what the issue is with the absentees. Most houses are empty. They come upon dead bodies on the lawns and children not home or watching television nonchalantly. The police arrest Troy for DV and child endangerment. Maggie appears at school, frantic about what happened with, with her other daughter dropped off at daycare. Yet everybody starts to notice that there are a lot of children lingering on the school grounds. When the principal starts to intercede, the children, basically, they attack him, at which point the school staff scatters. Maggie and Audrey take off in their car away from the, the horror, and they can't believe what they're seeing. Um, in another part of the town, the police nervously try to deal with the children to disarm them as they picked up sticks, throw garbage cans, and throw rocks. However, they're unable to do that, and the children disarm the policemen and shoot them. They also confiscate their walkie-talkies, and they listen in on any communication between the police and the police station. At the police station, Troy is being processed, but nobody really notices that there's a group of children hanging out outside the police station. And when the children start attacking the police station, the officer with Troy has to leave, so Troy escapes from the police station on foot. Audrey and Maggie go to a daycare center to get their children. However, they observe a host of other children escorting little children out the door. Then when they try to approach and get their children, the children attack Audrey, but they don't attack Maggie. They make their way away from the daycare center. Maggie becomes upset with Audrey about how she didn't do anything to help her get her child, but did take you know, her own child. As they're arguing, they're sideswiped by a car and um, crash into a tree. They observe the man getting out of the car, beating a child, and then driving off, not, but not before ranting to them that they need to leave town. They look for another car, they find an abandoned car, and they get into that car to go look for another child. However, they encounter another a group of adults who have sort of formed a posse to corral the children and keep them sort of pent up in a, in a nearby church. In the church, they look for their, old, their own children, which they can't find. The children seem kind of sedated, and they seem calm as the other adults are attending to them. Maggie is told, and Audrey are told, that 
children are also being kept at the town hall, so they go to the town hall. Um, when they go to the town hall, they find a standoff that's happening between Troy, who's now armed with some followers of his, and other adults blocking the way. Troy wants to get into the building, but the other adults won't. He threatens to shoot them. When they stand their ground, he shoots two of them. The gunshots ring out and start making the children in the town hall and the church rowdy. And sort of they wind up bursting out of the doors, causing a mayhem in both places. Uh, the adults at the church are unable to deal with the situation um, as the children are scattering, running all over the place. But at the town hall, um, Audrey sees her child and tries to sort of apprehend them. But one of her children stabs her and wounds her. The children disappear. The adults are left wondering what's going on. They don't know what to do. Um, as sort of night descends on the town, <clears throat> the children are just seen basically acting normally, just watching television in houses, getting food from stores. The adults are pretty much trying to sort of figure out a way to get out of the town. Um, you see a lot of boats coming from down the river, and the boats are not stopping to help them, but appear like there's like something else going on in other parts of the, the, the county or the area where the story takes place. Um, as the night descends, the children return to the town, and the adults run for cover. In the bar where some of them hide, people are trying to wondering what's going on, and all you can do is basically presume that maybe physical abuse of children over the years have somehow taken its toll and the children are deciding to sort of take it matters into their own hands. Um, children assault the bar and start dragging adults out of the house. Troy makes his way into an abandoned house with some firearms and starts picking off the children in order to stop them from apprehending the adults. The children set a large bonfire in which they start casting the, the adults in it. Um, Audrey being one of them. But before they cast Audrey into the fire, one of her children approaches her, very happy to see her, and tells her that she's happy to finally have her have some playtime with her. And basically the story ends with Audrey being dragged into the fire, um, and sort of she tries to crawl out, but they just sort of keep pushing her back in, and she ultimately dies. But as she's doing this, she's sort of maintaining that she still loves them, she still loves them, she still loves them. And that's pretty much the story. Wow. Okay, so this is not the feel-good smash hit of the no, summer that we're going for here. It's a sort of a dark homage to, like, you know, again, those 70s, you know, George Romero, John Carpenter. Sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Solid pitch. Lots of story food to play with there. Um, before we dive into this, though, we, we need to cover our ass. Marie, would you would you be so kind as to uh, deliver the patented roundtable podcast disclaimer? Why, certainly with great pleasure. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, Matteo, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important that you realize that everything, and we mean everything, <laughs> said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Clint, might be complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> this is your story, my friend, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside. You got it? Yes. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> Good. We're off the hook. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. So, so Mateo, I'm curious, what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so of brainstorming? Uh, what I'd like to see is really try and see how strong the plot points are uh, with the characters. So in movies like this and stories like this, 
you know, it, it's always a challenge to sort of write a an effective and appealing character arc sure, because sure. you have, you know, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and the beats have to really challenge whether or not the may not the characters may or may not change, but whether they try and endure. So I want to see how, what the balance I can find between developing the characters enough so you do feel some sympathy, even for someone like Troy who really decides that there's no hope and I just need to kill everyone. Okay. All right. I think you've come to the right place. Uh, we, we, that is our stock and trade here at the Roundtable, among other things. Uh, uh, <laughs> who knows where this is going to take us, but let's get into this. We always start off with a quick once around the table, just a quick uh, uh, impressions of the pitch and any any questions of clarification to help feed the, the brainstorming feast to come. And we always lead off with our guest host. So, Clint, start us off, sir. Uh, what are your first impressions of... of Mateo's story pitch, uh, script pitch, I should say. Uh, and do you have any questions of clarification? Well, I, first of all, I love the the, the idea that there uh, you've got two women leads mm-hmm. uh, with Audrey and Maggie. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. One of the things you said there's no cause, right? So there's nothing that set the kids off other than just no. They, I think it'll be implied of what. Could have like I think they they speculate. I, I kind of went through it very quickly, but when when the adults have some downtime to wondering what's going on, they speculate what why they're doing this, and that's really all they can do. I mean, okay. Yeah. Um, and then I I missed it in the pitch. What happens to Maggie? Um, yeah, I, I I'm sorry about that. I think I missed it in the pitch. Okay. Um, Basically, she's at one point. She's after there's the the mayhem at the church and the town hall. She starts feeling pains, and she starts sort of doubling over, like she's feeling some kind of pain. People think, "Oh, it's a contraction. What's happening? You're giving birth." And she's like, "No, no, something's happening. It's doing something to me. It's doing something to me." And she starts bleeding from blood just sort of starts coming out of her from in between, you know, in her womb, and she's sort of like doubles over and just dies. Okay. And does uh, and the what, child then emerge from the womb alien-esque style and say, ha ha, I've I've killed another grown-up? Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, again, if it can come imply, if it can be implied that somehow, what I think about is like, okay, even within the womb, children are a threat at this point. Okay. That, yeah, that's okay. what I got from that too. Right. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Clint? And what happened to Troy? Um, Troy is in the house. He's shooting people randomly, desperately. Um, they can't get into the house because it's an abandoned house. So they basically set the house on fire. And he sort of comes downstairs and realizes that he can't get out of the house. Okay. okay. It pretty much just ends like that. I was thinking of maybe some poetic justice, maybe having his son sort of light the fire. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Marie, what about you? First impressions and questions for Mateo. Uh, first impressions is uh, you've definitely got some good bones here. I I like I definitely got that kind of seventies horror Romero kind of feel to it. Uh, yeah. Not just yeah the setup and, and the conclusion as well, and and just the way that the the pieces kind of interlace, which is uh, it's definitely got that vibe to it, which I I quite like. Um, I did have one question: mm-hmm. is uh, at what point? 
what brings Maggie and Audrey, which are kind of together for a lot of it, and, and Troy, like they, they encounter in the bar once, right? Is that their only point of interception? Like, do, do they meet at any time? I'm, I'm fooling around with that. I'm trying to set up a triangle of meeting with Audrey and Troy since Audrey's a school teacher and she's, you know, if she sees sort of the condition of the son, you know, possibly being abused, you know, I'm thinking of maybe having a scene where she's confronting him about it and sort of it's a situation where she's trying to kind of be understanding and empathetic, but really getting on him for like doing this to the child and he's sort of denying it. Um, but I think the I think the only time they ever really meet is when the, the standoff in the town hall, when she you know he shoots someone and then she steps right in front of him and, and says you're not going anywhere. So I, I probably neglected to do that because I was talking so quickly. Pitches pitches are tough, man. I'll be the first to admit it. So so what happens is that he shoots at the town hall. Troy just shoots one of the guy, the adults blocking the way just to show he's serious. And Audrey stands in front of them after they scatter. She stands in front of the door and says, you're not doing this. I'm looking, basically, I want to go in there and find my kid. You're not doing this. So they begin to tussle, but it's the gunshot that sets the children off. Okay, um, cool. No, that's perfect. Thank you. I was just curious where they uh, intersected. Yeah, so that's really the only point that they're intersecting. And I think another thing I neglected to do was because you have this, this close relationship with relationship between Maggie and Audrey as the story progresses it's Audrey that's sort of taking the lead and I think Maggie's needs are finding that she's not her her needs are not being met with respect to her own children so at one point when there's the tussle and then the mayhem outside the town hall after that's over Maggie sort of goes to the other side and says let's just kill them all so she's taking Troy's side at that she's point. She's taking Troy's side because I think okay. that he's at the point. She's a, it almost like she's abandoned the relationship that she had with Audrey at the beginning. Okay. Because of this very heightened, intense emotional shock that they've experienced, again, within okay. the space of maybe eight hours. Okay. Cool. Anything else, Marie? No, that was uh, that was my point of enlightenment I needed. Thank you very much. Excellent. Um, and for myself... Uh, <sighs> Man, this is uh, uh, there's there's a lot going on here, Matteo, and just the first thing you know, children murdering adults, and then adults murdering children. Um, that's horrifying. That's horrifying right. on a very different level than like right. Michael Myers uh, uh, chopping up coeds at summer camp. Uh, sure. So you're you're hitting a very deep and intimate nerve and that's excellent from a horror standpoint um i i think what what concerns me is because this is going to be you're going to hit be hitting very very close to home uh uh, that you're going to need to be very careful about the treatment of uh the children and the adults and the issues that are raised thereof uh, uh, so a, a casual, you know, this isn't zombies. This is kids, and they haven't been drugged apparently or altered in any way. They've just decided, "Fuck you! I'm going to kill you all." Right. Uh, and that's there's something there, and I, I don't know what it is, but I just I wanted to put put the pin in that. We can come back to. It. I did have some questions. Um, so Maggie's pregnant. Who's the father? Um, I imagine her as being married, but she he's sort of. If anything, he's in the first. He's literally in a scene where it's like a very quick, 
going to work, honey. Goodbye. You know, I'll see you later. I'm going to work. And so then never so appears not, again. I think her emotional for 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 Maggie, her her real strong. I think she has a stronger relationship with Audrey than she does with her husband. Okay. You know, you're talking late twenties with with three kids. I think she's sort of made decisions in her life which she hasn't come to terms with yet. Okay. What if it's Troy's? What if yes. Oh. Yes, I was going the same okay. place. Yeah. Have have them be married or or, or separated? Or even if it's if it's if it's a uh, a, fl- uh, a fling. Ooh, right, mm-hmm. sure. That you then know, creates the bond on his wife. Yeah, with Maggie, then he's even a bigger scumbag. Sure, which is ironic because he's the one accusing her of cheating when they're arguing yeah. with each other. Well, and that also creates a bond, a tighter bond between Audrey, the Audrey and Maggie uh, uh, duo. Uh, and and you know what Marie was exploring uh, uh, earlier that the ties and the links between them because really uh, uh, you've got two parallel stories that kind of intersect briefly and then separate out again uh, uh, and and obviously Audrey and Maggie have a stronger line Troyce just kind of peters out and and doesn't go anywhere so sure. I'm I'm big on the whole you know reasons for people being there arcs structure and so on and I realize and I acknowledge up front that uh, sometimes film doesn't work that way so I I'm, no, I but it should well it, it, yeah if you really craft you could you could say a boatload in a well-crafted scene sure mm-hmm. one sure. scene literally two minutes you could say everything you need to say about that. I mean, you technically really should try and say everything you need to say about that character in two minutes. Sure. I, I do have one other question. Mm-hmm. Why don't the adults leave? So, again, my bad for um, <laughs> my <laughs> quick pitch, which i am like been fretting over for the last 24 hours. To get down. Understood. Um, the guy that sideswipes um, Maggie and Angie, you kind of... He sideswipes her, and then you see him get out of the car, and he's basically, obviously, throwing a child out of the car that he had in the car with him. And he doesn't, you know, you can only imagine what happened in that scenario. So he just wants to get the kid out of the car, and he's sort of yelling. You see him leaving the town, and he stops at a roadblock, which the children have constructed, and they're all hiding in the woods. They're kind of, like, giggling, almost playing with him. And he's sitting there yelling and screaming at them, and... Another car is coming into town and stop, and they don't know what's happening. They think there has been an accident. The children approach both cars and basically just slaughter everybody. Okay. All right. I the the problem I'm having with this scenario is, uh, uh, and I understand that you don't want to you know explain why the children are the way they are, but there are some continuity issues that I'm seeing. Uh, uh, several times during the pitch, kids are just behaving normally. They're watching TV, eating junk food skating on their skateboards but then parallel to that there's kids that obviously have an agenda they're creating roadblocks and and killing people they're going into uh, uh daycare centers and rescuing uh the younger kids obviously in a, in a form of solidarity with some sort of agenda in mind uh Someone's so leading someone's leading right exactly there there's clearly a, a, a pogrom of some kind that's that's being followed here and in order for this to have the the claustrophobic horror aspect of we can't get out of town because the kids have blocked us off then 
those kids that are just lazing around watching TV and stuff, that doesn't jibe. And and if then everybody, all the kids are in on it, then as Clint said, either somebody's leading or there's some agenda that's going on here. And I think that agenda then can serve as an accentuator of tension, an escalation of stakes, and a ticking clock that right now the, the story seems to be lacking in terms of of escalation, of, of challenges, of try-fail cycles, and, and general character uh, achievement of goals such as it is. So that's something I think I'd like to explore as, as we go forward with this. Uh, again, honoring your, your vision, Matteo, but maybe oh, uh, uh, adding some, some structure to what the kids are doing and how the adults are dealing with it all right let's dive into this uh clint where do you want to start man well i think i think you have to start with the biggest problem that i that i'm seeing because i have the same problem you do i think implied causality only works in certain situations and if you're asking an audience to go on the ride of basically adults killing children and children killing adults you're going to have to give them more than that yeah. Sure. Otherwise, it's just it's it's going to be a really hard watch. Sure. You said at the very beginning that the the really it was the effect of violence on children. The theme, what if yeah. you what if you pulled that out a little bit more? Mm-hmm. What if it wasn't just the effect of violence on children, but it was also the effect of social media? Mm. Well, okay. What if there is a leader who blames adults for the problems of the world, blames them for global? warming, blames them for all of the things, the bank crisis, blames the adults for everything that's gone wrong, and then starts asking, like, maybe they, maybe the cause is a, a video podcast or a, or a YouTube feed or something along those lines where it's a young icon, uh, entertainment icon, who is starting to ask these questions to these kids, and it almost turns the father to the, the evil that needs to be wiped from the earth. Mm-hmm. And these kids just take that lead literally, because I think that's that's your biggest problem is you've got to have you've got to have a something to to spark this. Sure. Otherwise, you have to believe that every adult is corrupt in that town. That there are no good parents. Right. Right. And that's that's going to be and a, that's, a that's tough a sell. Hard lead. Yeah. And it's also hard to to make then the your protagonists uh, uh, sympathetic, although I could see a reversal at the end of it turns out, yes, they really are. Uh, and we've been led kind of down the primrose path of, of the, the, the camera's focus, identifying with Audrey and Maggie and, and uh, Troy to some extent, and then having there be a reversal. I, I'm reminded of a movie sure, and sure. I can't remember the name of it but it was also back in the 70s uh how holbrook was in it and it was a rising up of the kids uh and it was it was basically anybody under 18 was taking over uh uh actually i guess it was anybody under 30 was what it was and and it was this massive escalation where they literally drugged the water in dc and and got all the adults high on lsd and and pushed through legislation that that basically completely disenfranchised anybody over 30 uh, uh and in the end you see you know how holbrook swinging from a gibbet uh uh and and you know the kids have taken over and then of course the closing scene is a 13 year old saying we're gonna put anybody over 15 out of business and and you know away we go (laughs) so the the uh the idea of it being an external influence 
uh, uh, obviously it has traction, it has legs, it has precedent, uh, uh, and especially you know with the you know legitimate concerns I think over the the influence of social media on culture and society, that's very relevant. Um, I'm going to propose an alternative, uh, and I'm sure Maria will come up with a third one. Um, that that this is evolution. I like that. Yeah, that this this is you know a a a, uh, a turning point uh, because of the violence, because of the the survival attitude, and this again is relevant because I think we're all feeling a little bit uh, 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 antagonized in terms of our futures. At least we are here in America, um, but uh, uh, globally as well. So this could be uh, uh, Mother Nature. Uh, I'm, thinking now of of uh Shyamalan's, you know the the plants trying to attack the happening, us the happening the happening right. yes uh, uh where basically it's the kids who say you know we're going to clean the slate uh, uh, and start fresh. This must happen. And it, at that point, we, it's nothing we can really point to, but it does give them a very specific agenda. Marie, what, what's your take on the whole kids aspect and structure within the story? I think there would definitely need to be some kind of explanation, not just about the fact that the kids, it's because all of the kids are going to kill. That's the thing. If it was some of the kids, then okay, some of the kids just got together and they formed a little kid gang. Mm-hmm. But because right. all of the kids are going back, regardless of their their how their upbringing or how it was in their household i think that's where my suspension of disbelief can unhinge unless you give me something i mean we've had some great explanations as to why the kids would go some great ideas here uh but something that would unite them definitely whether it's it's a video from someone on social media that that you don't have to go into details but that at least hints that maybe they're being brainwashed or uh, <laughs> if it's, you know, it's evolution or and something, you could even combine it evolution with uh, an environmental trigger that's triggered this latent gene of uh, the children have to uh, destroy their parents. I'm sure there's some creature in nature who does this. Um, right, that has right, to, yeah. And survive off of their Eat, well, eating them, depending on how how what spectrum of gross you want to make this, or uh, visceral, <laughs> literally. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, you could look at something like that even where, you know, you combine suddenly the environmental concerns with some kind of cool genetic latency that just pops out, and then it becomes uh, something that the kids, A, can't fight back, because none of the kids are trying to fight it, so you have to make it you have to solidify it as something that they can't fight against. And since none of the kids are trying to fight against it, not one of them, then you have to make it something that's overwhelming and, and omnipresent in all of them. Right. Uh, otherwise, you'd almost have those little separate gangs of some kids are good, others aren't. And also something, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm just visualizing these children coming at me and... Uh, if they know how to shoot guns, then um, maybe this is because I'm Canadian. If they know how to shoot guns, then someone must have told them something about how to shoot guns. So either they're getting knowledge somewhere because not every kid would know how to shoot or and or extra strength or something. Because I'm just visualizing myself. I just beat them up the head. I mean, I wouldn't kill them necessarily. I throw them in a closet. They're they're kids. I can put something in front of it. You know. Right. Um, I and have adults been. are stronger. Adults are are more savvy, more cunning. Well, I mean, not more cunning, but. Uh, <laughs> Not necessarily, uh, but yeah, I mean, we are we are a dominant force over over younger kids. As as you were talking, Marie, I just had a vision of a scene of a kid.
kid. Maybe Bishop. Maybe maybe it, this is Bishop's kid. Maybe Bishop is like patient zero. Uh, uh, and and I can see a scene where he's flipping channels, and we go from toxic waste to wars to rabid politicians to violence, 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 and then he just stops and stares. And you know, cue to other kids also stopping and staring. We can see that moment where something happens we don't know what and then you zoom into the eyeball and the pupil goes big or something something yeah yeah. (laughs) well the other thing i i was thinking was if you had like maybe a military video to psych soldiers up for war and it was created to combat ptsd if that got leaked and turns these kids basically into into the perfect soldier maybe it was even a program that didn't work yeah you know, on adults. I, I, the I, I, as much as I hate to to uh, argue a point from from the co-host or guest host rather, um, the thing that concerns me about that is that can be fixed. That yeah, could, well, that's true. That's that, true. That could be undone, and I kind of like the idea of the inevitability. Yeah. Of of these, because I think ultimately at the end, that's what we have to come to. As, as yeah. all of our protagonists are dying at the hands of the kids, uh, uh, the final message really is, this can't be stopped. Right, right. So. Well, actually, to that point, I have another question. Um, now, Maggie is the, the, the pregnant character, correct? Yes. Okay. I had an idea as, we were, as you were talking is, what would happen if maybe the kids at the end, uh, the very end of the film, instead of all of the adults dying... What if the kids were to escort Maggie from oh, the town? Oh, yes. Yeah, I love and that. Leave, well, and you leave the reason ambiguous. Mm. Are they doing it because she's a mommy-to-be or because they want to infect the world? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Me too. And, and that opens you up for potential uh, sequels, which is where the money is. <laughs> Smart Spoken like a true filmmaker. There you go. There you go. Well, and that... that, that the turning, they have to call it the return. <laughs> yes, the returning. Yes, this time it's personal. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and that's interesting. And, and if we if we riff on that a little bit, then the question arises uh, uh, as to why uh, uh, Audrey then uh, isn't selected. Now she's not pregnant, and and obviously with Maggie's very blatant pregnancy, that becomes uh, a visual touchstone for the fertility and the sus- the sustaining of the species, which I, I kind of think we're going for as far as what the kids are, are are trying for. I wonder if that opens up an opportunity then for Audrey's story arc to be proven unworthy. Mm. to be a vessel for the future somehow and and what is that unworthiness what test does she fail well her uh, faults as a, as a parent right they, what, have to be it? what i was thinking of um having a point where you know you have her she's divorced she has four kids there can be i mean it, it's sort of a natural thing for a parent to kind of have thoughts of resentment toward their children something like you know, maybe an admission of like, you know, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know, you know, well, well, can't kill him, you know, that kind of thing. Like yeah. something, she expresses something like, is this, does this woman hate kids? Like, like yeah. maybe Audrey is, you know, the, uh, she's the character who she thinks she's the perfect mom. And then at the end, while they're throwing her basically in the fire, they're reminding her of all of the things she did wrong. 
like the time that she smacked one of them, the time that she made that offhanded comment. So through the whole film, we as the audience think, oh, Audrey's the perfect mom because she's, you know, she's the uh, false narrator because yeah. she sees herself as the perfect mom. You know, I, I, everybody, everybody knows somebody who thinks they're doing better at something than they are. Sure. <laughs> if she's the one who thinks, well, you know, I work so hard, blah, 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 blah. And if she talks, you know, if she pats herself on the back for all the sacrifices she makes, maybe the kids don't want to hear that. Right, right. You know, and the kids call her out on everything as they're throwing her into the fire. Sure. And and we could even go darker and, and have her fight, uh, have her choose herself over her children as, you know, she's being dragged into the fire. Maybe she drags one of her kids into the fire. Uh, to take one of them with me uh, as as they go, which which uh, again affirms the fact that she wasn't. I really like the idea of the unreliable narrator and Audrey yeah. being revealed as perhaps you know. And again, this is my epic fantasy background coming in, having her be the instigator of it. Uh, uh, if if in those opening scenes. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you know. Yeah. Uh, Troy has been painted from the get-go as the abuser of children. What if it was Audrey? Mm. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Right, and and yeah. Troy, Troy is getting. You know, he's he's pissed and he's angry. He's already angry and pissed as it is. But and and he refuses to even dignify or defend himself when accused of child abuse. And and in the end, the, the big reveal at the end is that no, it wasn't. Troy, it was Audrey. Mm-hmm. And and another fun way you can do too, while just just riffing off some of what's been said here, uh, is you have with Maggie and Audrey, you have two characters that are very similar in a way. One of the ways that you could break them apart so that they're very different is Audrey could have the kids and pretend she's the perfect mom with that potential reversal at the end, and then Maggie is pregnant for a first time with a kid she doesn't want. So she's pregnant with a kid that's out of wedlock. It was just a one-night drunken stint or something, whatever it is. And she doesn't want the kid. So if you decide at the end the kids are taking her away, it becomes interesting because it's that question of, depending on how it's set up, will they save her or save the kid because she doesn't want the kid. She doesn't even like kids that much. Right. Well, and if you build Bishop up as kind of the leader of of this group... You know, he could use the, if she, uh, Audrey grabs one of the children, takes it in the fire with her, you could have Bishop basically use that as the uh, galvanizing end. See, I told you they were all corrupt. Right. Yeah. And right. and Bishop, if he is, because Bishop is Troy's kid, and if Maggie is pregnant with Troy's child, suddenly there's a half-brother in there somewhere too. So right. Bishop right. is like that main, then there's connectivity there that makes yeah. it a bit... Well, I mean, and if Maggie, if they escort Maggie out of town to infect the rest of the town, you could even end it with something along the lines of Bishop saying, you know, and now my baby brother's got work to do. Yeah, yeah. Something like that, whatever you want. But that. So it's like he's acknowledging the the unborn child as. Yeah, as his brother. As as his brother and heir. Wow. And what's fun, too, is then you're establishing that the children are somehow communicating with each other. Because Maggie could question, how did he know? Or you could make it clear before him, Bishop never knew this was his half-brother. Uh-huh. But somehow the children are all communicating, if you do something like that, depending on where you want to take no, it. No, that's kind of cool. You could actually lay that, lay the foundation for that early in the movie. Because it makes sense. If we're going that this is an evolutionary step, this is a an intervention on Mother Nature's part to keep 
the species alive and maybe it's not mother nature maybe it's like some sort of uber you know uh species hive mind whatever i don't care um but uh, if, if it is that impulse then it makes sense that they would be given or, or empowered with not superpowers but a a subtle you know, communication and empathy of some kind, maybe a kind of limited prescience. I don't know. Uh, well, here's 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 a here to build on your point. Yeah, Charles Darwin called uh, when he, when a species would change, he called it the turning point. Oh, dude! Really? Yeah. Ah. There you go. Love it. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm liking that. I'm liking that. One of the other themes. Uh, Mateo, that you invoked was how people deal with terror and outsiders in their uh, or, or fearful elements within their community. Um, and I, I'm reminded of that scene in the movie The Mist uh, uh, in the uh, grocery store uh, where we the real horror that comes out is not from the prehistoric squishy bugs uh, that are coming to eat us all and inject us with nastiness, uh, but it's the psychosis of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think if you play that up as well, uh, and that might require a broadening of your cast, but what that ultimately does then is affirms that the kids are right. Uh-huh. Well, and what if, what if there's a what if the what if there is are a series of tests that adults fail moment after moment after moment? Sure, and and we don't know them as tests initially. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. And and in the end, as you know, final judgment is being rained down. Uh, uh, you know, there can be a reveal of you 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 showed lack of compassion. You showed uh, uh, disdain for each other and for your environment. You know, maybe they maybe they they set something on fire that's that's vital because they think it'll keep them alive. You know, maybe they burn the grocery store, uh, which is stupid, or or destroy the water treatment plant or whatever the humans do uh, because they think it's going to help them in some way. Uh, uh, and and all of their actions, all of their choices, all the natural things that you see in a horror movie of self-preservation are demonstrated as the exact wrong choice to survive this Holocaust that has come upon this town and, in fact, the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Bam. Yeah. Ah. Well, and, yeah. If, and if, you're fir- if the first film is set, you know, locally, and then you're allowing it to expand at the end of the film, that leaves you all sorts of options down the road oh god yes and that's that's actually the scene that i wanted to share i can see when they're in the bar uh uh you know i can see you know news footage coming over the line of of you know this happening all over the planet just to establish the fact that it's a global phenomenon and then have all the signals cut out and all the cell phones die because the kids have torn down the, the the cell phone towers and disrupted communication and that then leads you into, holy crap, this is more than we thought it was, and blah, blah, blah. And it could be a, a catalyzing point. Just a random scene I wanted to put out there. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm watching the clock, and it's starting to tick down here. Mateo, is there anything else you want us to dig into or, or a question that you can put to the group that we can sink our storytelling and brainstorming teeth into? Um, no, I really loved all your ideas because I think, really really define i think i'm gonna have a this has got to be a very very solidly packed lean tight first act that really sets things up for all the characters and defines the relationships but also like you said sort of having this sort of 
outside influence coming in. Can I make one suggestion? Yes. One of the comments I made earlier was that I was really, really excited that you had two female leads. Don't, I, I, I would be cautious to not make Maggie, I would make Maggie, if Maggie doesn't want the child, that's fine. But while she's having that that debate in herself, also show that she is a good mother, meaning she's doing the right things to take care of the baby. Mm. Because yeah. otherwise you've got, Audrey's already going to be kind of become your, your one of your antagonists. Right. I think it's a mistake to have a movie with two strong female leads and turn them both into jerks. That's a really good point, and it makes it even more fun if you because if we go towards that Audrey reversal towards the end, and yeah. you show that Maggie, even though she doesn't want the kid, she's still a very nurturing person, then you have definitely that contrast suddenly between the two friends, which makes sense then for you to have the two female characters because they not only lean against each other and argue against each other, but they also contrast each other in interesting ways. Right. Well, one of the things that would interest me going into sequels is if Maggie's a good mom. And maybe the new baby, the new child, doesn't turn, but is infecting the other kids. Ooh, oh, like a, the reversal. Yeah. It's not the returning; it's the reversal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and that's what I, I I like that very much because as as the final scene on this movie happens, there's hope. Yeah. If Maggie is indeed the 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 true protagonist of this story, and she's being led off by the kids, and she survives, then there's a possibility in the sequel that this horror that has been inflicted upon the planet by our own creation uh, uh, can be averted somehow. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, like I, that. I, I think you got a good story. I, Thank you. I do too. I, I, think oh, it, yeah. I think it's got potential. Well, let's, let's, let's take this to a close then and move into our final phase. This is a, a one last once around the table. Give, give Mateo some final thoughts, uh, uh, final advice, any ideas you didn't get a chance to put out in the in the brainstorm proper? Uh, uh, fill his pockets with literary gold so he can go and craft this script, sell it to Paramount, and we can all see it next summer uh, at our local movie theaters. With Shia LaBeouf. Uh, with Shia starring as right. Troy. <laughs> Just do it! Just do it. Clint, Clint is that, is that, is that your... <laughs> We'll lead off with you. Go ahead, Clint. What, what's your final advice besides just do it? I have three pieces of advice that I use on every script I write. Cool. Um, and I keep them near me all the time. They're in multiple notebooks, but I keep them with me every time I go to even start a script. Um, one is that preparation carries you from the th- from theory to reality. So prepare your story and then write your story. It's If you do the prep, writing it is so much easier. Um the other thing I would say is look outside the genre. You know, you, you mentioned John Carpenter. Watch other things to get feels for, uh, for how you can use those to manipulate your audience who uh, will go in with expectations. And then go against cinematic convention. You know, just because 10 stories you love might do something uh, similar, maybe you want to pivot left instead of right. Um, those are the three things I try to Remember, every time I'm, I'm, I sit down to write. Beautiful. That and and that's that's good advice for all storytellers. I think uh, that's outstanding. Marie, what about you? Final thoughts for Matteo? 
Um, I think you have something that's going to build some great suspense and just have that kind of feel of dread for it. Uh, I would say make sure that you're clear in your head, even if you don't put it on the screen, as to what exactly is possible and happening so that you don't break your viewer out of the movie when they're looking at it and suddenly kids are doing things that kids shouldn't be able to do, but but there's really no uh, texture to support that. By texture, I mean, you don't need to explain it to us in scientific words, but you need to at least build a story in such a way that it makes sense within its own context. So don't break your own rules. Be clear on them in your head. Uh, and also, uh, you have a lot of characters, and, and Clint already touched on this and Dave as well a bit. You have a lot of characters who are going to bring out those nasty sides of themselves, or we're going to glimpse them at least. Because if you have that theme of uh, basically that the children are killing adults and adults are killing children, obviously you're leaning towards a very dark side, which is totally cool. Make sure to remember that a little bit of sympathetic feelings towards characters will bring the viewer a long way when it comes to either rooting for them to caring about watching to the end of the story as well. And just to get that that moment of, of dread even more strongly because they care on some level. So I, those would be my, uh, my two thoughts. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent thoughts. Uh, wow. Uh, for myself, Mateo, I've got, I've got two suggestions. Um, one is to consider just as an alternative uh, making this funny. Uh, and and I know it's like what? <laughs> how, how the hell do you do that? Um, you know, and dark, I'm, I'm th- dark humor. Dark, dark humor, humor. Yeah, exactly. 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 Uh, uh, and I'm thinking there's a movie that's that's making the rounds now that has the guy from The Office uh, where kids turn into zombies and they're all high school teachers trapped in a high school. Oh yes, I saw that. Scene. I saw the trailer. I'm probably not going to see it, but uh, <laughs> that's just, that's just me. But um, I think because of the, v- I'm sorry, very volatile nature of, of the theme that you've chosen for this, I think at least considering the possibility of making this a dark humor piece could de-landmine some of the uh, very, very volatile responses you could get from it. Um, and I would never, ever advocate for blunting or tempering your vision for fear of the reaction it's going to engender. But, uh, like I say... Because, well, I, th- I think you're going to get a reaction anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, just something to put on your creative palette and taste sure. every now and again. See if that would work for you. The other thing is that the real horror of this story is not the kids. Right. It's the, the adults. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and that you know if if there's if there's a core around which this story needs to be told, uh, uh, then I think that needs to be at least a part of it. Uh, uh, what's happening from the kids and and the initial reaction and the sympathy that we will naturally feel towards the the POV characters is justified. But I really like the idea of that transformation and the revelation on the audience's part of. Oh crap! No, we deserve this. <laughs> That's yeah. I hope, that, I hope to really convey that because I think um, another technique I've thought about doing is really beginning the opening credits with just literally stock footage of child victims of DV and murder, which would probably shock the audience and keep them really quiet, and then start the story that way. 
I can see that. I can. I can. I can also see a contrast. I could see, you know, idyllic scenes, idyllic scenes, and then like a cut frame of some horrific abuse. Yeah, because I mean, nine, I mean, I, I listen to true crime podcasts a lot, and the the nine eleven recordings of things just yeah. just stab me. And it's right. like there's nothing that a monster we can make up can do that we don't already do to ourselves to some extent or each other well, and now we're launching into the essence of horror which right. will be for another podcast altogether uh, uh mateo this has been awesome dude and you know the way this thing works you write this bad boy you make it happen and whether you self-finance it or indie film it or or get paramount to pay you buttloads of cash to produce it uh however it happens get it done get it out in the world and when you do we will have you back and we will do our first video knighting ceremony <laughs> we will make a film of knighting you as a knight of the round table <laughs> podcast <laughs> are you down with that sir I'm down with it. Awesome. So are we. So are we. And we'll, we'll get Clint uh, uh, to produce, and Marie and I will star, and it'll be fabulous. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mateo, this has been awesome. Excellent pitch. Excellent setting of the Story Table Feast. Thank you so very much for, for stepping up and giving us a, a rousing good brainstorm, sir. And thank you for all three of you for giving me the opportunity to speak with creative people. And <laughs> I don't really do. Collaboration is a potent, potent mojo. No doubt. No doubt. Clint Gage, dude, I knew this was going to be fabulous, and I knew having you on the show would make it even more so. And I was right. Uh, Dude, thank you. Your your insights, your perspectives, your experience all served to really make this a superb uh, uh, exercise in film and storytelling brainstorming. Thank you so much. Oh, I, I had a blast. <laughs> so did we. So did we. Obviously, lots of laughter, lots of good times. Marie Billado, my co-host, let's do this again. Uh, I, I, I love having you uh, uh, and your insights and your perspectives uh, infuse it in this. I think we make a good foible and counter to each other as well as a good support. I agree completely and any time, seriously. <laughs> Fabulous. I have it on record. <laughs> you are recorded. <laughs> nope, too late, too late. Can't take it back. <laughs> and and as long as we're doling out the gratitude, uh, dear friends, thank you for hitting that play button and, and enjoying this experience with us. You are the reason why we record and distribute these things uh, so that you can catch fire, derive the, the inspiration and the creative insight that, that happens inevitably when a bunch of creatives get together and start talking story. Uh, if you're digging it, if you're feeling the love, then then blog about us. Spread the word. Not enough people know about the roundtable, and clearly more should. We, we, want, we want to take over the world like the kids in, in Mateo's uh, <laughs> story. We want to be an evolutionary step of creative awesomeness. Uh, uh, so thank you so much for that. Holy crap. I'm... The room. T- I have the AC cranked, and the room is still ten degrees hotter as it always is. I'm spent. Uh, I'm I'm 
handing here. And and the fabulous thing is, is that in 14 days, in two weeks, uh, I will be sufficiently rested. Marie will be sufficiently rested. We'll have another fabulous guest host on the show coming in to 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 pour wisdom into our ears and, and enhance our, our awareness of story. We'll have another courageous guest writer on to pitch a story idea. There's going to be like a phoenix from the ashes. The round table will rise again. Uh, but holy crap, that's 14 days and that's a long damn time. Marie, I hesitate to ask, but what can our listeners do between now and 14 days from now uh, to make that time just whiz by? So to make the time whiz by this time, it's a very practical homework assignment. I can be very practical today. Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, each day until the next episode of the Roundtable podcast, you must, after listening to all this great creative energy, write 300 words a day. That is attainable. That is, is doable. And and at the end of 14 days at 300 words a day, you're going to have a novella. Our short story at least. Our yes. short story at least. That's awesome. Yes. yes. So, so do it and then thank us after you've gotten it done. And you're welcome. <laughs> yes, you're welcome in advance. Gratitude is always an important element in every activity. That's awesome. Good advice. And I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, that you find what you're looking for. So look for the top shelf blue label goodness. Look for the lost present at the back of the Christmas tree. If you look for the fabulosity in your world, friends, I swear to you, if you look for it, you will find it. We'll be back in 14 days, guys. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.